Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Doing good, doing good. Want to say if this is your first time visiting us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship, whether you're in our room or joining us online, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are going to be continuing our study through Revelation, looking at the third letter to the seven churches of Revelation, the church often referred to as the compromising church, the church that was in Pergamum. Now, if you look up the term compromise in the dictionary, you'll see four major definitions of this word. The first one, probably the one we're most familiar with, it's a settlement of differences in which each, each side makes concessions, a compromise, right? But then the other three go, go like this, something that combines qualities of elements of different things, compromise. A weakening or reduction of one's principles or standards, compromise. Or to cause the impairment of something, compromise. You know, the first definition there is probably the one that first comes to mind when we hear the word compromise. And, and it's not a bad thing in and of itself, right? When we're talking about conflict resolution or arguments or issues, um, we often talk about finding compromise, right? Where both parties kind of concede to come to a, a middle ground. And uh, that's not a bad thing. But the other three definitions are what were taking place at the church of Pergamum and is what predominantly characterized the third era of church history, which came after the apostolic age, which was uh, represented by the church in Ephesus, and the suffering church, which was represented by the church in Smyrna. So around the 300s, when Emperor Constantine basically made the Edict of Milan and said, look, no more persecution of the Christian church. This era was predominantly characterized by what we're gonna be looking at today. But it's not only something that happened historically, compromise is something that happens today both in the church and in individual lives of Christians. Now scripture calls compromise, the, the combining of qualities and standards of values from the world with one's faith, or the resultant weakening of one's Christian principles and standards, or the ultimate impairment of one's faith and witness, compromise, the Bible calls it worldliness. And worldliness is being concerned with or in love with the things of the world. You know, scripture has a whole lot to say about worldliness and really none of it is good. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the same author that's writing Revelation wrote this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And of course, when we see that phrase, the world there, it's generally referring to the world's values, the world's standards, the world's principles. In scripture, you see that worldliness is often equated with spiritual immaturity, describing the Christian believer who lives as if they are still part of the unsaved world and participating in its ways. The epistles depict worldliness as the opposite of godliness, in 2 Corinthians, there's a description there of the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Where godly sorrow is, I recognize that I'm guilty. Worldly sorry is, dang it, I got caught. James draws a very clear distinction between, between what he calls friendship with God and friendship with the world. He says in James 4.4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility? towards God. So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. You know, the Christian life is meant to be lived set apart from the world. As Christians, we are called to live different from the world because we are different from the world. We have been changed by the almighty power of God. We are in the world, the Bible says, but not of the world. The kingdom that we're a part of as God's children is the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of this realm. But worldliness, compromise comes when we try to live according to or for both at the same time. And this is what Jesus addresses in the letter that we're looking at today. A group of Christians who would compromise their faith by trying to blend the world's ways into their walk, not abandoning their faith, but proudly living and proclaiming, we are Christians, 
while also trying to do what the world does and appease the world and do the world's ways for reasons of comfort, safety, to just make things easier. And we know that we live in a world today that is getting darker, is getting more hostile towards Christianity, and we're quickly, if we're not already there, gonna find ourselves in a place where as the world says, oh, it's fine if you're a Christian as long as you tolerate everything we want you to tolerate, we're gonna find ourselves more and more marginalized, more and more persecuted. But we're gonna see what God promises, what Jesus himself promises to the one, to the individual, to the church, that conquers the temptation to compromise with the world's ways. But first, we're gonna worship God. We're excited to worship him today because he is so holy. God is moving in our world today. I don't know if you guys have uh, been keeping up with a, a revival taking place in Kentucky that is spreading now to two other campuses. That's exciting to see. It is so exciting to see a a church full of people literally 24 hours a day for almost two weeks now consecutively, 24 hours a day, worshiping him, praising him, praying. And God can do that anywhere. We don't have to drive to Kentucky to see revival. Revival can start right here today in your lives, in this church, in this area, in this state. And um, that's what we wanna see but it comes from us separating ourselves from the world and saying, God, we just wanna be with you. We wanna praise you and see your holy name lifted up high. And so let's start today by doing that. Let's pray first. God, we thank you, Lord. We love you. We're so excited about what you're doing in this world. Lord, yes, there's places where we might look around and say, man, it's so dark, it's so difficult. God, maybe we're here today, Lord, as individuals who who have compromised in our own faith and we sense that separation, we sense the lack of vibrancy in that relationship with you. But God, you wanna do a mighty work within your people. And God, we know that you can bring revival anywhere at any time, in any church, in any life. And God, we ask for that spirit to move in our lives, God, that we would be passionately committed to you and you alone, that we would not want nothing more than your presence in our lives, God. We want, would want nothing more than to, to, to be together as God's people, worshiping you, praising you, proclaiming your name and your glory, praying and watching you work. But God, it starts in our heart. And it starts by dealing with those areas where we have compromised. And so God, speak to us today. Let us know your will, your heart, your desire for us. We love you, God. Help us to love you better. We believe in you, Lord, but increase our faith. We worship you now, God. We praise your holy name. Be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. With that, guys, we are in Revelation chapter two. We're gonna be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning, so let's read aloud the words of this prophecy. It says, right to the chain, let's start over. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, Pergamum, or Pergamus, as it's sometimes rendered as well, was a city that that, uh, was about 50 miles north of Smyrna, which we looked at last week, and about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So it wasn't a port town like Ephesus or Smyrna. It was a landlocked town, but it was a very important town of its time. Now, last week, I actually misspoke, and I want to correct what I said there, because last week I said Smyrna was the only one of these seven cities of Revelation that was still occupied. Uh, I was completely wrong. 
okay? I own that um, because Pergamum um, is actually a place that is also still occupied. It's actually the modern city of Bergama in Turkey or, it, you know, close to where Pergamus used to be. So it's still an occupied place. But the earliest mention we have of this city named Pergamum is from a writing in 400 BC. And centuries after that, Pergamum had become a very prominent city in the area there. It was actually the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum around the 200s BC. And the dynasty that ruled there was the Adelid dynasty. Well, King Adelid II of the kingdom of Pergamum wanted Pergamum to be a glorious city that rivaled Athens. And so he started a lot of building projects and, and, and it thus became a very major cultural center, a huge religious center in the area. Well, King Adelid III, the next in the line there, um, in 133 BC, he actually died without an heir. And so in his will, he bequeathed the entire kingdom of Pergamum to Rome. Here you go, Rome, you have my entire kingdom. And thus, Pergamum and the whole area became a part of Rome. And during the Roman period, it actually grew into a very spectacular city built mostly on a multi-tiered Acropolis. And so what you'll see on the screen here is an artist's rendition of what that looked like at the time. Very beautiful. Um, today, it's actually a well-excavated area that you can actually visit, and you can see that a lot of the remains there are still there and still the shape and the place where it was originally. But it was a place that had like a large 80-row theater, right? A lot of these ancient cities had these theaters, but the one in Pergamos was actually the steepest one in all of antiquity, and it could seat about 10 to 15,000 people. By the time of Revelation, the writing of this letter, uh, Pergamum was no longer the capital of Asia Minor. Ephesus now had that honor, but it was still the second most important Roman city there. Because as Ephesus was known for its wealth and being the capital of the, uh, um, the province there, Smyrna was known for its beauty and its architecture. Pergamum was known as a major center of religious worship and education and knowledge. So regarding religious worship, you know, going to Pergamum was like going, going on one of those uh, tour of the stars homes in Hollywood, but for the gods, right? You would go there and, and, and they had a temple to every major deity uh, that you could think of. Pergamum was such a huge religious center that even in the second century, they built temples to Egyptian gods so people could come there and worship. So it was kind of like the Las Vegas of worship, if you will. And so you wanted to go uh, find something, that's where you went. Um, the reputation of Pergamum was simply that if you desired anything, if you needed anything, if you dreamt of anything that the gods could provide, Pergamum was where you could find it. For example, if you just needed to talk to the manager, you needed to talk to the guy in charge, well, there was the altar of Zeus that existed there. The altar of Zeus was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was this gigantic place to worship Zeus and to lay sacrifices down to his name. And at the time, he, Zeus, was considered the king of the gods. He was also called the king of kings. And if you needed something done or you had a complaint, he was who you went to. If you were coming to Pergamum for pleasure, you would go to the temple of Dionysus, who was the god of wine the god of partying, the god of uh, pleasure and abundance and joy and exuberance. And the worship in the temple of Dionysus was basically just, just unending raves and parties and drugs and orgies and all this type of stuff was the worship that took place there. If you needed food or a good crop, you'd go to the temple of Demeter, who was the goddess of harvest, and pray that she would provide food and sustenance um, to you and your family. If you needed healing, you would go to the temple of Asclepius, and the place was actually called the Asclepion, and he was the god of healing at that time. And actually, the, the temple of Asclepius there was one of the major places of, of healing. And so if you um, wanted to get healed from any type of ailment, you would go to this temple, and the worship of Asclepius, they actually believed snakes had healing powers, and so they would have these big rooms where they would load you up with drugs so you're in this kind of weird trance, and they would say, go into this room with a bunch of other people and just fall asleep, and then they would let these big snakes out, and the snakes would just crawl over you all night. And then the next day, you woke up, and you were like, I had a dream, and they would interpret that dream, and they'd say, Sclepis has revealed what is wrong with you. 
And you'll see there the, the picture of this God, he had a staff with a serpent wrapped around it, which is kind of interesting because today, that image of that serpent and that staff is still used in medical professionals. As a matter of fact, EMTs wear this badge. And you'll see it on an EMT's uniform today, right in the center there, the staff of Eclepus, the god of healing. If you needed wisdom there in Pergamum, you would go to the temple of Athena, who is the goddess of wisdom. And so generals would, would appeal to Athena to get military strategies so they could win their battles, but she was considered the place of all wisdom, the source of all wisdom. And if you wanted to pay fealty to Caesar as Lord and Savior, as you were called to do in those times, you would go to the temple of the imperial cult which is at the highest point of the Acropolis. And so there's an artist's rendition of that that is going to come up maybe. Yeah, there it is. That was the temple to the imperial cult. And today, if you go and visit the location, this is what you'll see. A lot of it's still there. Regarding knowledge and education, Pergamum had the second most famous library in the entire known world at that time. It was second only to the library in Alexandria. The library of Pergamum was said to contain 200,000 manuscripts and scrolls at its height. And again, this, this library sat right next to the temple of Athena. So again, you wanted knowledge, you wanted wisdom, you wanted to go to the place that was the most enlightened and had all of the supposed truth. Well, you would first go to worship at the temple of wisdom in Athena, and then you would go look for what you needed in the library there at Pergamum. In fact, the word parchment that we have today evolved from the name Pergamum. It was because at the time, Pergamum was the center of production of all parchment as papyrus was falling out of use. And so the, they couldn't get the papyrus that they used to. And so Pergamum actually invented parchment and started actually mass producing it as a center of learning. And so the people of Pergamum were very proud of their sophistication. They were very proud of their uh, religious inclusivity and the scope of their religious inclusivity. They were very proud of their educational eliteness. And it's to this city, the church in this city and these people, Jesus writes in verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. So it's in this place of, of written knowledge this place of learning and open acceptance of all religious teaching. Jesus opens up with this portion of the vision from chapter one, just as he does in every single one of these letters. And the piece of that vision he selects for this particular place, this church, is the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. He is the one who addresses you. Now, if you remember from chapter one, we talked about that double-edged sword that was proceeding out of his mouth. It was symbolic of the word of God. God's words, the truth, and how his word is sharp like a double-edged sword that it can, it can cut for good and it can cut for bad. It brings hope and healing. It also brings the truth of judgment and that it's very sharp. It's precise. It knows exactly what it needs to do. You know, matter of fact, in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then in Ephesians 6, 17, you might remember he's, he encourages them through his description of the armor of God. He says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now Jesus is introducing himself here to a church that is struggling with, with staying pure to the true knowledge of God. They were struggling with, with staying pure to that. They were struggling with staying true to, to, to being separated from the world, to not be commingled with the world, but to be separated from the worldly culture around it. And Jesus says, look, I am the one who can judge and discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Jesus knows when we're playing games. He really does. You know, sometimes we want to kind of trick ourselves, you know, and justify doing worldly things because, well, we did some Christian things, and, and, and we live sometimes like there's this scale, right? Well, if I just do one more Christian thing than worldly things, I'm good. The scale is set in the right direction. And Jesus is like, I'm not looking at your pitiful scale. I see the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. 
He's the one that sees all of that. And so he opens up to this church with commendation to commend them on the good things they were doing. And he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now this was meant to comfort them even though it might sound threatening, right? Can you imagine someone that says, hey, I'm the one who holds the double-edged sword and I know where you live. <laughs> that sounds a little threatening to me, but no, he's, he's not saying it in a threatening way. He's acknowledging the conditions and the circumstances that they live under. And then when he says, I know, he's saying, look, I know from experience what it's like to live among wickedness and idolatry. You know, I, I dwelt among mankind once. Okay, I get it. It's tough being a light in a dark place. But he says, I know where you live. And that word live there means I know where you've settled down. Like this isn't a place you're just passing through. This is your home. This is the center of your life and your social circle and, and everything. This is where you work. This is where your family is. This is home. But he calls it Satan's throne, where Satan's throne is. You know that word throne, it just simply means a seat of authority. When we think of a throne, it evokes the picture of like a king sitting on their throne, right? The king, the one in charge, the great authority. You know, we see pictures of God seated on his throne in all ways. And so this, this idea of throne there um, represented authority. Now, some think that because the altar of Zeus looked like a big throne, you know, if you remember that picture, it looked like a place where Zeus could come down from heaven and sit. They think, oh, that's, that's what he was referring to. Um, others, you know, think that because the temple of Asclepius um, used snakes and serpents inside its worship uh, to such a great degree that um, he's referring to that because Satan is a serpent, we know. But more likely, it's just a reference to the fact that that Pergamum was a place that was just under the control and under the grip of satanic pagan worship and idolatry. The influence there was so heavy. Again, because it was like, look, there's, there's temples in every city, but if you really wanted to worship, if you really wanted to express your, your, your paganism, Pergamum is where you went. And so it was a tough place to be a Christian, a tough place to do ministry, and a tough place to main, maintain a strict adherence to Christian ideals. But he goes on to say, yet, you're living amongst this really difficult place, yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. And so again, I get how bad it is where you're at. As a matter of fact, look, you're not denying my name even though one of you was killed for your witness. You, 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 you didn't deny my name. Now imagine coming to Christ in this culture. You live in Pergamum. Maybe a missionary came in or a Christian shared with you. Maybe you went to Jerusalem and visited. Maybe you heard of Jesus somewhere, but you come to faith and then you learn that, that Jesus is the king of kings, not Zeus. And Jesus is the source of ultimate true pleasure, abundance, and joy, not Dionysus. You heard stories about how Jesus, when he was here on the earth, he fed 5,000 people with, with two loaves and five fish, and, and you're just like, wow, this story, and, and you've learned that he's the great feeder. He's the provider of sustenance, not Demeter. He's the great physician and the ultimate healer, not Asclepius. Jesus is the source of all wisdom, not Athena. And of course, Jesus is the Lord and Savior, not any Roman emperor. But professing this, much like in all the cities of the time, professing this would cause one to be cast out of everything, excluded, denied, rejected. It created great conflict and discomfort and inconvenience for your life like in the other cities where you couldn't shop and you couldn't go into the marketplace and you would lose your job. And so your comfort and your personal peace and your relationships and your prosperity and your position in the community, all of it was at risk because you would proclaim Jesus Christ. And the pressure to let up on the exclusivity of Christianity, right? No, Jesus is all these things, not Zeus, not all these other gods, Jesus. He's God, the only true God. It's in him that you find everything. To, to let up on that exclusivity, the pressure was great to do that, right? I imagine people there said, oh, well, you say Christ is, is the greatest authority. Maybe Christ and Zeus are the same. Don't we hear that today? 
Some people go, oh, Jesus and Allah and Buddha, they're all the same God. Stop being so exclusive. In Pergamum, Christians in that place, they weren't persecuted for their faith per se. They were persecuted for their exclusive faith in Jesus. That's what they were persecuted for. The people there, look, stop telling us our gods are false. Stop saying that there's salvation in none but Jesus. Why can't you be inclusive the way we are? Look how enlightened we are. Look how learned we are in our religious religiosity. I mean, we got temples to everybody. Everybody could come and worship here. You guys keep saying you're about the truth. Well, we have all the truths here. Why do you want to be so exclusive? The pressure could have been, look, you can have your faith. We're not telling you you can't be Christians. We, we welcome and accept all faiths here, but you can't keep preaching this exclusive Jesus is the only way nonsense. And if you do, well, then we'll exclude you from everything. And that's what was happening to the Christians in Pergamum. Just like the other cities. You're gonna keep doing that, you can't work. You're gonna keep doing that, you can't shop. You're gonna keep doing that, we're gonna exclude you from everything. But Jesus commends them there for holding on to his name. That phrase, holding on to, it means continuing to commit to or remaining closely united to. So Jesus is like, look, in the midst of this pressure, you guys didn't stop claiming to be Christians. You didn't stop going to church. Uh, You didn't stop outwardly professing your beliefs. Like, no, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus is God. You didn't stop that. You didn't stop preaching the truth of the gospel and what it is and what it means. You You didn't deny your faith, he's saying. And then he says this phrase, even in the days of Antipas. And you go, well, who's that guy? We don't know, all right? He's mentioned nowhere else in all of scripture. And so the only place we can go to to find out anything about him is church tradition. And church tradition says that Antipas was actually ordained by John the Apostle to be the senior pastor of the church in Pergamum. And according to tradition, late in the first century, before this letter of Revelation was written, he was actually boiled alive in a large uh, copper bowl. Not bowl, bowl, like like bowl, right? You know? And and, and it was like this big uh, piece of idolatry, and they put him inside it, and they lit a fire underneath it, and they boiled him alive. Um, And that's where he lost his life. That's where he was martyred. That's what church tradition says. Um, Again, the Bible doesn't corroborate or deny that, but that's what the, the histories tell us. But the point is, is that the senior pastor of their church was killed for his faith, for teaching and preaching. No, Jesus alone. No, don't go worship at the altar of Zeus. No, you don't need to go to the temple of Athena. No, it's not okay to, to do both. Jesus and Jesus alone, and he was killed for it. So Jesus commends them for not denying their faith even in the face of that. In the very proudly pagan place, even after their senior pastor was publicly killed for it, he goes, you didn't deny my name. Good job. But verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I want you to notice that phrase there in in verse 14. He says, you have some there. Right, that tells us that not everybody in the Pergamos church was, was doing wrong. Not everybody there was engaging in this compromising activity. But not everybody was remaining committed to and closely united to Jesus and Jesus alone. Some were tired of being different. Some were tired of being excluded from everything. Maybe they were just afraid because their pastor had been killed for their faith, and so thus they started compromising. It's possible that some were even thinking, well, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to church on Sunday and I'm a Christian, but, but I also went and participated in that party over at the Temple of Dionysus, and, 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 and it was an act of worship there. And, and, but, you know, my compromise, I'm, I'm actually like a missionary, like, I'm just, maybe they're going to come to know the gospel as, as I drink and party and participate with them. 
Notice, though, that this address, this letter is to the whole church. The whole church is getting the address, and the implication is that there were some committing this error, he says, among you, there are some there, but the rest weren't doing anything about it. That's the implication. That's the implication. You're tolerating it. You're allowing it. You're compromising by allowing this sinful activity and behavior in the church. Well, I'm not responsible for them. I claim Jesus. I'm doing everything. Yeah, but you know what they're doing. And you're not saying anything. And you're not confronting them. And you're not going, hey, that's, that's not okay. You're just allowing it. You see, compromise comes when we try and maintain good relations with God and sin, right? When we try and maintain relations with, with God and the world, we want the world to like us. It's much easier to do business and to prosper. It's much easier to, you know, to just get by life if we compromise a little bit. But I'm a Christian. I don't deny his name. But when we try to live both as Christians and how the world lives, it's compromise. What's interesting is back in the letter to Ephesus, they defended the truth dogmatically. They were unwavering in defending that truth, but, but they were rebuked for doing it without love. Right? They forgot their first love. They forgot that it was for Jesus and Jesus alone. But Pergamum, we see that they're kind of upholding loving at the expense of truth. Right? They allowed worldliness into their, their lives, and that's not that big of a deal. You know? Oh, we gotta be friendly to seekers, and oh, we gotta, we gotta you know, it's not, it's not that bad, it's, it's okay. Second and third John, again, the same author. He wrote all about how love and truth go together. And if you deny truth for the sake of love, that's not loving at all, it's compromise. And that's what was happening in this church. It's okay for you to do both. I can't judge you, I'm not gonna say anything about that. I'm not gonna confront you lovingly and go, you, come on. Jesus is the healer. You can't be telling people, hey, go to the temple of Asclepius for healing. Man, those snakes, that's, that's just a really cool experience. Maybe Asclepius will heal you. Oh, yeah, no, but I'm a Christian too. You see, you can't do that. It's compromise. Compromise waters down the truth. doesn't help it. Compromise weakens and diminishes the strength of our, wit- our witness. Jesus takes that very seriously. He, want his, he wants his people to be, to be pure and to be holy and set apart. It's not that we're called to be you know, perfect people without sin. He deals with that very clearly. But when we knowingly, willingly choose compromise, Jesus takes that very seriously. And the church in Pergamum was tolerant of this overwhelming pagan practice around them. And they had some in their church that were like, maybe I can do both. Maybe I could be a Christian, serve Jesus while living for the world around me, while doing the things that the world around me does, while, while supporting and affirming the things that the world around me does. And I could also be a Christian and be saved. It's important to understand that when it comes to the body of Christ, compromise isn't just a personal issue. It is a personal issue, but it is not only that because when others in the body are in error and we tolerate it, I believe what's being taught here is we are in fact compromising ourselves. And we see that in the next phrase, right? The rebuke is you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That phrase hold to, it's the same one holding to my name, <laughs> right? Being, being closely or commi- continuing to be committed to and remaining closely united to. He goes, look, you have some that are, that are holding to my name and they're closely united to that, but they're also closely united to what he calls here is the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what is the teaching of Balaam? Well, Balaam was this Old Testament character that you could read about in Numbers, I believe it's chapters 22 through 25, and you read his story, but he's also addressed in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude verse 11. And so to summarize all of it, Balaam was a prophet of God. He had a prophetic gifting to speak prophecies, to speak on behalf of the Lord, but he tried to sell his prophetic gift to an enemy of Israel, a man named Balak. And Balak said, hey, I want to hire you to curse Israel for me. And he goes, okay, 
I want money. And then every time he went out to curse Israel, he blessed them. And Balak would be like, bro, I paid you to curse them. He's like, I know, I tried. Let's try it again. Okay, blessing. Sorry, bro, I'm trying. And then after realizing that he was not gonna be able to curse Israel with his prophetic gift, he goes on to teach Balak, this is how to get Israel to curse themselves. This is how to get them to sin against God. And he basically tells him, he goes, look, have the Moabite women go into the camp and seduce the men and, and, and sleep with them and they'll be committing sexual immorality that way. And then those relationships that develop with that compromise there will then develop into those women leading them to, to do idolatrous stuff and start worshiping the, the gods of the Moabites and stuff and, and getting involved in all these pagan rituals. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Peter calls um, this whole process Balaam's path or Balaam's way. And in 2 Peter, it's the idea, the choice to promote or accept what is false for financial gain as a believer. In Jude, verse 11, it references Balaam's error, which was Balaam's willingness to accommodate pagan beliefs for personal gain or benefit. So when you put all this together, the teaching of Balaam was this attitude, this idea that one can serve God and tolerate the world's ways, especially if it's personally beneficial. That's the teaching of Balaam. And so the teaching of Balaam teaches compromise. It teaches allowing a little bit of sin, participating in a little bit of sin. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't affect much especially if it benefits you in some way, you know? Like, gosh, my, my, my boss really hates that I'm a Christian, and you know, it's just, if I just went to the bar with everybody after and got drunk with them, he'd get off my back, and so it's okay, it's not that big of a deal. Because before I blacked out, I think I said something about Jesus. I'm preaching the gospel. Or whole slew of other things where we say, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, participate in that and, and tolerate that within the family of God, but then I'm going to go out and, and then be a part of other things, and oh, that's not that big of a deal. I'm not going to stand for righteousness. You know, I might say, well, I'm a Christian, but, but, but you do you, and you're not going to take that stand that God wants us to take for righteousness. It's that idea of compromise. The person following the teaching of Balaam is a believer that, that, that thinks they can, or that it's no big deal if you, if you compromise for the sake of fame, reputation, money, personal pleasure, personal gain or benefit. They think it's no big deal to compromise their faith if it makes life a little easier to live. And Romans 1 verse 32 talks about these types of people where it says they, they know how God feels about sin but they still practice it or approve of those who do by tolerating it, allowing it. And this is exactly what the Nicolaitans taught. So he goes, look, there's some there that hold to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were, uh, um, well, we're not 100% sure of what they are, but, but I believe that historically they were a sect of the Gnostic teaching that, that said, you know, look, sin, in, sin you commit with your body is no big deal because it's committed with the body. And so what the body does can have no effect on the spirit and the soul. So your spirit and soul can be saved and you can go out and participate in the Dionysus parties. But it doesn't matter because it's just your body, right? That's what the, these uh, Nicolaitans taught. You can do both. You could be drunk and sleeping around Saturday night and come to church Sunday morning and go, praise God, I want to worship you. No big deal. No big deal. And so in Revelation here, it's pointed out of what they did. It says they, they ate meat sacrificed to idols and they committed sexual immorality. Now considering that that gigantic altar of Zeus was there and there were sacrifices made every day, all day long, animal sacrifices there, and then that meat was then consumed as a part of worshiping Zeus. Considering that, and then also considering the, the method of idolatrous worship through the sexual immorality, which was rampant through most of the Roman worship there, especially in the Temple of Dionysus, both of these, the eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and the sexual immorality, indicate that the eating and the immorality were, were, were undertaken as acts of idolatrous worship. Right, because you have other places in scripture where Paul, very clearly, he's like, look, 
the meat that was sacrificed on an idol to a God, that God doesn't exist. So you're not sinning against the Lord by eating it. But if your brother stumbled by it, you know, be mindful of that. Don't, don't eat it. So there's that idea there that, that it's not about eating the meat. The idea here is that by eating the meat, it was a part of the pagan idolatrous worship that was taking place there in Pergamum. So what you see there is religious compromise, and then you have moral compromise. Now, some in the Pergamus church were propagating the idea that none of this was wrong, and the rest either just tolerated that or participated anyways. And again, possibly to relieve the pressure that they were being under for being exclusive as Christians. But one small compromise leads to bigger and bigger compromise in our lives. That's just how it works. You compromise in one little area, well, then the next one's not so bad. And then the next one's not so bad. And they get bigger and bigger each time, but then it's not so bad. Well, you know, God didn't strike me down yet, so he must be okay with it. I'm like, if God struck us down immediately for sinning, we're all done. We're all done. (laughs) But his grace and his mercy, he's like, repent, keep moving, right? But we think we can compromise and keep going and that it's no big deal. Now, you know, is this happening in today's church? Is this happening possibly in your life? Well, yeah, we could look around and we see that there's many churches today that are affirming to what God says very clearly is sexual immorality, right? There's churches all over the place, especially here in Southern California, that are very affirming to the LGBTQAI+, I think is what it's up to now, lifestyle. Oh no, that's okay. The United Methodist Church is actively ordaining homosexuals and lesbians as pastors in their churches. Very affirming to these things which are clearly sin according to God's word. But we need to compromise a little to, you know, it's easier to live in this world if we're not against that agenda because that's the big one. Many in our world today have placed social justice issues above the gospel in importance. I don't think social justice issues are wrong. But there's a lot of liberal Christians that say, no, that's more important than the gospel. So it's more important that everybody feels comfortable than they're presented with the fact of of sin and salvation. It's unfortunate. And a lot of the modern church tries to blend these issues and practices of the world into the church so that we can be accommodating. Jesus, he's like, look, I'm glad you hold to my name. I'm glad you profess Christ, claim Christianity. I'm glad you don't deny my name in the face of persecution. But you're living according to the world's ways at the same time, and that's not okay. That's not okay. We want to see revival in our lives. I think there's areas in in all of our lives where God is going, get rid of that compromise. I want to do a work. I want my presence to overwhelm you. I want you to just be so enraptured with just the, the presence of God that yeah, you would sit in a church for 24 straight hours praying and worshiping, right? But, but there's compromise, there's something where you're, 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 you're playing both sides of the fence here and that's, I can't do a work with that compromise in your life. That compromise, I mean, I, I think when Jesus sees that, it's just, it waters down the message, right? It waters down the message, and it makes you hypocrites when you go out to try and be exclusive about Jesus, but you're inclusive about everything in the world. He goes, you're hypocrites that way. It makes you liars. Before I got saved, the number one reason I didn't become a Christian was Christians. That was just truth, because I'd be at the party, and we're drinking and we're doing drugs and we're doing all manner of foul stuff and they're, you know, between snorting the line or whatever. Oh, and so you need to come to church with me. Why? We're doing the same thing. All you have different than me is guilt and I don't want that. And when we compromise with the world, it just, it just, it makes us liars. And I think Jesus is saying to this church, you can't claim the exclusivity of Christian truth while being inclusive to worldly truth. You can't really claim to be his follower when you willingly and knowingly do what he says not to do. That's not following Jesus. I'm not talking about salvation here. When you say, Jesus, I'm following you. You're my Lord and master. I'm going to live your ways. And he goes, don't do that. And you're like, well, accept that. 
They don't work together. And then as Christians in the church, we can't water down the topics of sin, hell, and judgment just so the world likes us a little bit better. We can't. Now this doesn't mean be obnoxious, right? I think I've said that in every study so far. (laughs) Don't be obnoxious, don't be unkind, don't be cruel, but be firm and bold and confident in the truth, in love. Because yes, all are welcome to come to Jesus, all are welcome to come to Jesus, but it's always according to his word, his truth, his way. It's always on his terms and not our terms. And when we ever find ourselves saying, Jesus is the only way for me, but I can't say that for everybody else, we are denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. So verse 16, Jesus gives us the answer, how to fix it. So repent. There you go. Repent. It's interesting. He says, so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That phrase, so repent, in the original language kind of reads this way, repent or else. (laughs) Which is kind of like, well, thanks Jesus for just being matter of fact, right? Just cutting right to to the point, right? Repent or else I will come quickly. It suggests urgency, right? The phrasing here suggests, look, look, if, if, if you're here, if you're doing this, stop, stop right now. Turn around, reroute your life, do it now, do it immediately, don't wait for tomorrow, don't wait for next week, don't wait for later. So repent, the urgency there, right? Do it now, don't wait. You're making the choice to compromise, so make the choice to not. That's what he's getting at here. Could it be that there's some here in our church today in the building or online that are compromising? You have compromise in your life. Now, I'm not trying to condemn anybody and point the finger of shame, but, but is there an area of your life where God's been trying to get your attention? And he's going, look, I love it. You're, you're holding fast to my name. You're preaching the gospel. You're standing for righteousness. You're, you, you, you proclaim that. I love that, but, but there's this thing I have against you. And it either is or will start to affect the witness, the proclamation. He goes, we gotta deal with that compromise. We gotta deal with that. If there is in your life and there's something that God is speaking to you about, the worst thing you could do is say, I'll handle it later. I'll get to it, maybe tomorrow. If you're tolerating something in your life that shouldn't be there, fix it now, now. And so I'm just gonna pray real quick. We're not done with the study, but I feel like the Lord wants us to deal with it now. Father, we confess our compromise to you. And Lord, as we're praying, each one, if there's something that that you're revealing in their mind as we pray, God, that is an area where they have compromised with the world. Lord, where we're trying to live our faith while allowing, tolerating, or participating in the world's ways, knowingly and willingly, God, and you're revealing that to us, God. Lord, we wanna say we're sorry. Lord, we repent. We're turning from that now. Lord, as we have made the choice to compromise, we make the choice to obey right now. But Lord, the reality is, is we are weak and sad and we need your spirit and your power to help us. Set us free from these things, Lord. That we would be people that would shine so bright the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. We give it to you, in Jesus' name, amen. But then he, he, he says, repent or else, or else what? And he says, I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember that double-edged sword we were talking about, right? It's two-edged. One edge is the edge of, of bringing hope. It's the edge of bringing healing. You know, you remember back in chapter one, we talked about it, it says sharp double-edged sword, and that word sharp, has two major meanings. One, it means sharp, like it'll cut you. 
but it also is a word used for, a, for an anesthetic that, to bring healing and to, to bring recovery. And so there's healing and hope in one edge of the word of God. It cuts between the lies of the world. It cuts from truth and false hope. It reveals the word of God's truth to us as it cuts through those things that are lies and misrepresentations. But the other edge is the edge of judgment. God's word, including his warnings, are true, is true, real, concrete. We cannot dilute what his word says. We can't deny what his word says. We cannot be cavalier about his word, what his word says. We can't just take what we like and spit out what we don't like. We can't only quote the verses that, that promise us health, wealth, and abundance and then just ignore the ones that say, look, get your act together or there's gonna be consequences. Jesus doesn't want, and I don't believe he will tolerate for long, a divided heart. Especially when that divided heart leads to misrepresentations about him to those that don't know him. His truth, his word, it can either comfort you or it can condemn you. And to the church at Pergamos, Jesus says, look, turn from the sin of compromise now or else my judgment's gonna come. Now, I don't believe that's a judgment of you're no longer saved, right? I don't believe that. The Bible's very clear. But the discipline that comes is promised if you don't deal with what Jesus is calling you to deal with. And he says the same to the church today, and he says the same to our lives today. Then he closes in verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who received it. So do you have ears? Then listen up. He is speaking to us. He said to the one who conquers, that, that word conquers, it means to win in the face of obstacles. To win in the face of obstacles. The one who overcomes the temptation to compromise. The one who overcomes the temptation to turn a blind eye and say nothing and do nothing when our brothers and sisters are compromised. The one who overcomes the temptation to accept and tolerate and even participate in worldliness, even if it's to make life easier. He goes, I got three promises, three blessings for you. Three things that I believe result from a life free of compromise, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Now, I'll just be straight up front with you, the pre precise meaning of what he means by these things, nobody knows, right? We don't know the precise meaning. It's symbolic language here, but, but there are some good possibilities of what he's referring to here. Now, when he says manna, we remember that manna was the provision that God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? It's what he supplied to them. They, they were out wandering the wilderness for 40 years, and, and where are we going to get food? And this is a place of just desolation, and God provided this manna. It's interesting. The word manna means what is it? I always love that, right? They walked out one day, and the ground's filled with the stuff, and someone goes, what is it? Yep. And that's what they ate. And God sustained them for their whole time in the wilderness. But he doesn't just say manna, he says hidden manna. Hidden manna. I believe that's likely a reference to the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant was built, there was some manna that was placed inside and hidden under the, the mercy seat there as a uh, permanent reminder that God is the provider for his people. It's a permanent reminder that the world has nothing of lasting uh, value to offer to us. And so the idea here is that the provision that is found hidden within the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, will be provided to you. Don't go to the Temple of Demeter to get food and provision, and don't go over here for this. Don't go, look, trust me, and I am your provider. I, trust me, and I'll give it to you. I'll take care of you. Stop compromising and make things easier. Just stand firm and trust me. And then this white stone, there's many possible interpretations for this. I found one list that I think had 21 different possibilities. Um, just to list some of them, uh, in that time, white stones were, were used by judges to declare someone not guilty, right? There was a white stone and a black stone, and so if you were declared not guilty by a judge in a court, they would give you this white stone. And so it could be a reference to our acquittal, right? Um, 
that, that, that you, are, you are declared not guilty and you could live and, and walk in that. There's also uh, white stones were used by the high priest in the Old Testament to determine God's will. In the high priest's robe, right? Because we have a picture of Jesus in chapter one being a uh, high priest. So the robe they wore, they had these stones on their shoulders that had the names of Israel inscribed on them. And then in the breastplate, they had this thing called the Urum and the Thummim. And, and, and our best understanding of that is that there was a white stone and a black stone inside this thing. And so when they were beseeching the Lord, God, we want to know your will. Should we do this or that? They would pray, they would worship, and then the high priest would reach in and Oh, pulled out a white one. That means God said yes, right? So it could be a reference to God's approval, um, the fact that God will, you know, give his will to you and declare that. But also, white stones in those days were used like VIP passes into temple events. And like I said, we don't know exactly what this was referring to, but I believe the next part of this and the context of the letter um, gives, I think, is a good hint to what he's referring to here because he says you'll get the hidden manna, you'll get the white stone, and then on the stone is inscribed a new name which nobody knows except the one who receives it. With, with this in mind, I lean towards the VIP invitation concept. Um, personally, um, because the white stones of invitation in those times, it was actually like a VIP thing. You would get this white stone, this, this piece of stone, and it would have your name etched on it, and you had to provide this to get into the exclusive temple events, you know, and, and you know, the VIP area at the Temple of Dionysus and all of that, right? And, and you got, you know, special treatment with this. You were included in society, included in the world. You weren't ostracized if you had this invitation, and if you remember the Christians in Pergamum, they were excluded from society due to their exclusive claims for Christ and Christianity. And some of them there, they wanted to be included. They wanted to be welcomed. They were tired of the world being against them. And they wanted to participate in and with the people that were there that they knew from work and they knew from life and they knew from the market. And they may not know Jesus, but man, I just, I, they're my friends and so, they wanted to be included, and so they compromised. And their compromise led to them being invited back into the club. Oh, sure, you're a Christian, but you're not one of those judgy ones. You're progressive. You're tolerant and inclusive just like us. How wonderful. Come join us. You know, we're like you. I mean, <laughs> you, you drink with us, you party with us, you do drugs with us, you do all that. You even worship with us. Oh, maybe you don't worship with them at first, but little compromise leads to big compromise. And if someone asks, yeah, you, you say you're a Christian, but you really don't go out of your way to tell anybody. You're compromised. Your faith is compromised. And Jesus says, look, overcome the temptation to do that. Overcome the temptation to blend worldliness with your, face, with your faith, and I will ensure that you are invited to the most important banquet at my house. Right, Isaiah 56, 5, he says, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. I believe God is speaking to our hearts today. I believe God is speaking to his church today. And yeah, it's true in many ways. If we compromise, we may be less offensive to the world. We may be more accepted by the world. Um, and that may lead to temporary or temporal comfort in living. But at what cost? At what cost? Let us be people who hold fast to the name of Jesus and nothing else. And we would be a people that are untainted, unsullied, uncompromised, holy, set apart for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, sometimes we might say that out of just habit. And so, Lord, it, it behooves us to take a moment to think about that when we say we love you. Lord, we're not perfect people. You don't expect us to be perfect people. But you do ask, Lord, that we choose you, that we choose obedience, that we choose to live set apart from this world and its ways, that we choose to stand for and uphold your righteousness and your word and your ways about all things. 
And that, Lord, even as the worldly culture around us might change and shift and, and, and their standards and values would move and change, and, and Lord, things that, that are considered sinful by you would become normalized, Lord, you still call us to stand fast and to stand strong for you, to not compromise by tolerating those things, allowing those things, or even participating in those things, Lord, in any way, for any reason. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in our hearts that we would not be compromising Christians or a compromising church. But Lord, we would be that light on the hill shining brightly without corruption of any kind, without any of that, Lord. God, we have enough challenge with just our sinful nature wanting to sin without us willingly and knowingly entering into things. We know we shouldn't. But God, we can't do any of it without you, and so we ask, God, that you would just be our Lord, our Savior, that you would be our provider and provide the sustenance we need in all things and all ways, that you would be our source of wisdom, that you would be our healer, that you would be everything we need, God, and that we would trust you in that and not turn to anything the world has, even when it gets difficult. Lord, that as we overcome these temptations, God, we would see that you are the great provider of, Lord, the hidden manna, and you provide for us, whether it's financially or material or whatever we need, God. That even in the darkest and most difficult times, Lord, where we don't know how we're gonna pay the bills, God, help us to have faith in you that we would watch you do miracles. And that, God, we would receive that, that invitation, Lord, to your house, Lord, bearing that name that nobody knows but you and us, Lord, because you know us so intimately. You know us so personally, God, that we would joyfully and confidently be able to walk into your presence, God, without shame or guilt or any of that, Lord. Help us, God. Lord, we confess our sins to you. We confess our compromise to you. We ask that your spirit would fill us afresh, Lord, I pray, God, that your spirit would fall upon this body even now, Lord, that we would be just full of you and your presence and your light and your holiness and your goodness, and that we would be led and guided by that in all ways at all times. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.